If you weren't here at the beginning, my name is Paul Ramsey, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning, uh, and, uh, an honor to be preaching God's word uh, this morning. I'm a, um, uh, I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn, uh, and what that means is I'm a pastor in training. So I, uh, uh, and I'll tell you, I guess one implication of that that I wanted to give, Justin gave you the disclaimer that he didn't really have a, he had a scratchy voice this morning. I wrote this sermon differently than I normally do. Um, usually I manuscript kind of word for word, and I did that with most of this sermon, but I gave myself a little bit of wiggle room, so I apologize in advance for what's about to happen. Um, but no, that, that's, I, I, uh, I'm excited, I'm eager to see what the Lord does and how the Lord grows me even today, as he has been in through this season as a resident. Um, and what that means is I'm just getting ready to start a new Sojourn Church in another neighborhood uh, of Houston. Um, I'll be here, I, I got here to Sojourn Galleria with my wife, Lindsay, and our daughter, uh, Tallulah, and since we have had our second daughter, Harper, who is back there, uh, uh, and we're just uh, thrilled to be here at Sojourn Gallery for the season. We'll probably be here another about year and a half uh, or two before leaving, Lord willing, to plant a church in the Brazewood, Bel Air area of Houston. Um, so I say that if you're new here, if you're a guest, you probably didn't even need that information. But that's mostly, I've gotten a, a lot of questions from our members like, are you, you're a resident? Are you leaving next month? No, I'll be here probably for another a year and a half or two. Usually I'm leading worship, um, but today, preaching. And as I thought about this morning, right, this, this passage that we, that we just heard read, it's, a, it's really an incredible passage. Um, and as I thought about how to kind of give an introduction for this passage and what, what God is, is, is saying to us through this text, um, there's, there's a lot of things in this story uh, that I went into as I was writing the sermon that I kind of chopped yesterday afternoon and evening. Um, as, I, as I kind of, as the Lord, I think, placed on my heart really kind of one thing um, that I think that God is communicating to us through this passage. Um, in, this, uh, uh, in this passage, we're given two pictures of two men. We're given a picture of Saul, a picture of David, um, and, and a number of details that we won't go into this morning. But in those pictures, uh, I think uh, we're really what this passage is driving at is fundamental to, even though this is in the Old Testament, this was written 3,000 years ago, um, this passage. Um, uh, what it gets at really is the meaning of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a pursuer of God. Um, and so I'd ask that question just to, for starters, you know, what is a Christian? <laughs> um, it's one of those questions that, that might seem self-evident uh, when you first ask it, like, oh, I know what a Christian is. Uh, it's, it's not actually a biblical word. It's just a word that means little, Christ, little Christs, but it's the biblical word that, that refers to Christian is the word disciple, right? That's the word the Bible uses, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so what is a disciple? You might say, oh, it's someone who goes to church. It's someone who you know, reads the Bible, who knows a lot of the Bible, who does good things in the world for other people, who loves their neighbors, you know? Um, but, but really, there's a very simple definition that Jesus himself gives for what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. He said, in order to be my disciple, you must lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple. In other words, Jesus says, in order to follow me, you must die uh, so that I can come to life in you. And that's a, big, that's a big deal. Jesus said elsewhere, he said, count the cost for following me. He, gave, he told the story of a man, hypothetically, building a tower 
He said, if a man is getting ready to build a tower, he's going to count the cost beforehand because it would be embarrassing for him to get halfway up the tower, decide, ah, shoot, I didn't realize it would cost this much. I'm just going to abandon it. That would be a waste of resources and it'd be embarrassing for him. Jesus says, count the cost. This really will cost your life. But as you give away your life, you will reap hundredfold what you've given away. You will gain eternal life and all of the blessings of relationship and fellowship with God. Um, and that's really kind of what this, this passage gets to. It gets at what it means to follow God, what it means to lay down your life and follow God. And so we're going to zoom in and look at a couple of, at these two pictures that I mentioned, um, the picture of David, the picture of Saul. Um, and, and to give, I guess, a little bit of context, in 1 Samuel, we've been following the story of the transition of Israel. This is God's chosen people among all the nations of the world. God chose this people, and they were a tribal society. Uh, up until this point. And 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, trace the transition of this tribal society into a monarchy. So there are tribal people, the 12 tribes of Israel, um, of, from the 12 sons of Israel, uh, Abraham's grandson. Um, and this is the transition to the monarchy. And so we've been tracing this story. Uh, Samuel the prophet, uh, who the book is named after, anointed this man named Saul as the first king of Israel. Right? And pretty much from the beginning of Saul's reign, Saul experiences a slow but accelerating fall uh, from grace. In a king, God was looking for a man after his own heart. And as it turns out, Saul wasn't this man. Uh, he was not a man after God's own heart. And his, it was his pursuit of his own way, uh, his own power, his own greed, his own envy. We've preached on this for the past couple of weeks. Uh, because of this, he's really, his, his kingdom, uh, his kingship is in a death spiral. Meanwhile, David, uh, who we've also been following, has been on the rise. He's the man after God's own heart. Right? Um, uh, this is, that's a phrase from 1 Samuel 13. David is a man after God's own heart who God sought out and found. Taylor preached a sermon on this on Christmas Eve where Samuel goes and finds among the sons of Jesse, he chooses David, the young, the runt of the litter, and says, you know, God sees not as man sees. This is a man after his own heart. And so he anoints David, this is years before, uh, to be king. Uh, and a few chapters ago, David defeated Goliath through simply trusting God. We've seen David delivered time and time again from the hands of Saul, um, who's seeking him and trying to kill him. Uh, and, and so we see this kind of, this kind of two, two stories, one ending, Saul's story ending, and David's story beginning. In this passage, um, uh, we're going to just zoom in onto how this is characterized in this event, um, uh, how they're characterized. And we're going to look at what the characterization of Saul the characterization of David tell us really about life, about what it means to follow God. So our, uh, the first picture I want to look at is a picture of Saul. The verse right before our passage in 1 Samuel 23, verse 14, gives us a good setting for the whole story. It says, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So Saul, King Saul, uh, was seeking after David every day. He had to get David and kill him. Why? because David was a threat to Saul's kingdom. Um, he was a threat to Saul's power. He was a threat to Saul's approval ratings in the kingdom. Last week, Taylor mentioned uh, there's, a, there's a song that the women of Israel are singing. They sing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul hears this, this is an outrage, I'm the king. I need to be the one known for taking down the ten thousands. And so he's watching his power, his kingdom slip through his fingers to David. Um, and so he's trying to off him. In, in verses 19 through 23 of our passage, chapter 23, we see Saul receiving aid from the Ziphites. These are a, a, Jewish, a Jewish family descendant from the tribe of Judah, I think. Uh, and they offer to bring Saul right to David. And with their help, Saul begins to close in on David and his men. So we get to this scene at the end of chapter 
uh, 23, which, uh, which Tom read for us. But let me read these verses, uh, 26 and 27. It says this, Saul was on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry, come, the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And this must have been an incredible moment for Saul. Right? Saul was this kind of, he was at this point, he was just kind of deranged in his obsession with getting David. And now he's been given good intel from his scouts. And he's, you know, it, it says they've surrounded right as they were closing in on David. They could see them. They were getting ready to capture them. Um, and then, you know, at this very moment, David's finally within reach. Saul gets called away to fight another battle. And so verse 28 says, so Saul returned from pursuing David. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. So God, right, has been delivering David time and time again from Saul's hand. Um, and notice how God does it here. The, this strong army that Saul has, this strong army was about, this was a battle that they surely would have won. They greatly outnumbered David and his troops. They had the, they were, they were surrounded them. So, so this is a battle that they should have won. Uh, but they're diverted uh, by the interference of a foreign nation, and not just any foreign nation. They were diverted by the Philistines who were coming. The Philistines were the greatest enemy of Israel's, uh, and the Philistines, basically acting as unexpected saviors, deliver David from Saul's hand. Uh, as, as one commentator put it, this is one of the endless variety of ways in which God delivers his servants. Sometimes it's direct aid from friends, and sometimes it's even through the activity of enemies in foreign nations that God has his way, God, God works his will in the world. So God didn't give David into Saul's hand. Um, this, this, this obsession of Saul's that's consuming everything in his life um, is opposed to the plan of God. And, uh, and you and I both know if, we know, if we if we know anything about the Bible, man is not strong enough to thwart the plan of God. Right? The, this, the, the weakness of God is stronger than the mightiness of men. And so he delivers David. And, and, and this is the picture that we're given of Saul. Right? He's a deranged, he's an obsessed man um, seeking to kill his enemy. But, but Saul's not just any man. Right? He's the king of Israel. He's the most powerful man in Israel, God's chosen people. He is, this is God's chosen kingdom, which has been striking fear throughout the ancient Near East. Right? God is on their side. They're winning all of these battles. And so Saul is really the most powerful man kind of in the world at this point. Um, and he's totally lost his way. Rather than functioning as the king of his people, he's on this personal vendetta to take out his enemy. Uh, and he has to be beckoned by others to come say, hey, king, do your job. The Philistines are coming. This is what the Israelites had asked for a king. They said, we want a king to fight our battles. And Saul's over here fighting his own battles rather than the battles for his people. And so because of Saul's really envy and his self-obsession, he's lost his way. He has an enemy and he must do whatever he can to take care of that enemy. That's kind of the picture that we get of Saul. Now we turn to David. The second picture is, is the picture of David, um, and it's a huge contrast from the picture of Saul. Um, verse 15, uh, to start with, uh, we see in verse 15 that David knows exactly what's going on here. Right? David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. So David wasn't just this kind of blissfully ignorant uh, party, trusting God because everything was great in his life. Um, no, he's, he's on the run. The pursuit of Saul, Saul was trying to catch him. David and his band of, uh, of really refugees were, were fleeing repeatedly. They didn't have a place to sleep for very long. Um, and so this, this, uh, this, this kind of oppressive pursuit uh, is an ever-present weight sitting on David's shoulders. 
And so, you know, in other words, David's trust in the Lord didn't come easily. Um, he was pursued by the king of his country. Right? This king had tried to kill him many times before. He had every reason to distrust God, to shake his fist at God. Say, God, why are you doing this to me? But he doesn't. He trusts in, he trusts in God. And, uh, and I guess we get the first kind of window into, into what this trust looks like in verses 16 through 18. Uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David to strengthen him in, his, in the Lord, encouraging him. And there's a couple things to point out here. Think about it for a minute. Jonathan is Saul's son. Um, and Saul has been trying to get to David, trying, trying, trying for years, trying to pursue David and kill David. And here in just one verse, it says, uh, Jonathan rose and went to David. <laughs> right? So just a few words. Seems like Jonathan was like, I'm just going to pop over and see David. Um, and this characterization is, of course, intentional. You know, Saul, at enmity with God, is just frustrated and frustrated by God's repeated deliverance. But Jonathan, coming to the aid of, of, of this man after God's heart, uh, just skirts right up, uh, skates right up to encourage David. And, and look at what Jonathan says. Verse 16 says, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Right? And he did this by reminding him of something God had told him before, that he will be king over Israel because of that, Saul's quest to kill him necessarily won't be successful, right? In other words, rather than Jonathan simply saying, I'm with you, I got your back, bro, and I'm, I'm here, I'm your best friend, and whatever happens, I'm here. That's not what Jonathan says. Um, he says, he doesn't say, I've got your back. He says, God's got your back. There's no need to be afraid because God is the author and the executor of his promises. Uh, and so Jonathan's reassurance is simply a reminder of the promises of God for David. And this, let me read what one commentator says about this. He said, of course, Jonathan's presence itself would have been a great comfort and refreshment for David. Yet our personal presence does not have the abiding encouragement that God's sure word does. We best encourage not by being cuddly with people, but by reminding them of the promises of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. I'm not uh, depreciating the helpfulness of the personal touch or care but in an age that wallows in caring and sensitivity on every hand, believers need to know that solid encouragement comes not from emotional closeness, but from God's speech. Very profound um, and important. Uh, and remember, this is David, uh, is a person who has direct access to God. Right? He had just talked directly with God in the story just before this about whether or not he should go attack the Philistines. This is the beginning of chapter 23. And, 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 and David does this, and he sees God repeatedly being faithful to his word. God tells David, go, I'm going to give them into your hand. So David goes, and they're given into his hand. And so he, David has, uh, has no problem just after this hearing an encouragement of the word of God and saying, yes, okay, I believe you. God's word is sure. And I want to dig into this a little bit more uh, about a year ago, I was reading through the Psalms, uh, which is a, the book of songs right in the middle of, uh, of the Bible, kind of, right in the middle of the Bible. Um, and I was struck by something. David, King David, is the author of many of the Psalms. Um, and, and repeatedly, time and again, David says the same thing in these Psalms. Whether it's a Psalm of lament, a Psalm of celebration, a Psalm of confession, David repeatedly says very similar things. He says, uh, he doesn't say, Lord, you know what, I'm, in a really, I'm really in dire straits. Do, just do something that I've never even possibly imagined. That's not how David writes the Psalms. David says, God, you've been faithful up to this point. Simply do the same thing that you've been doing. God, you've been faithful. I know you're faithful, so 
would you just encourage me today and do what you've always done for me? My um, daughter, Tallulah, our toddler, uh, looks at me, um, I guess most evenings, and she, she looks at me and says, Kiku, Kiku, Kiku Kai. And she, uh, she expects me to know what she's talking about, right? What I don't, you know, you know, when I don't give her what she's asking for, then she gets frustrated because she knows usually when she says Kiku, I give her what she wants. Um, so when I go over to her little sound machine and turn on Twinkle, Kiku, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Sky, you know, Little Star, you know, Kiku Kai up above the clouds so high in the sky. Anyway, all the words, her words are, they fit. Um, and so, so I turn that on and she doesn't, she's not shocked. Like, how did you know, Dad? She just looks and says, that's what I thought, Daddy. And she goes and chirps, kiku, kiku, kai, you know, as, we, as, as the song goes on. Um, and, and see, Tallulah knows from experience what should happen when she says kiku. Similarly, it's easier to ask God for something we know he can do from experience than it is for us to ask for something far beyond our wildest dreams or something we've never seen before. Not that we should never ask him to do those things. We're told to do those things. But I'm convinced that actually for most of our lives, and especially in stressful situations, situations that drive us toward anxiety, our minds are most helped not by dreaming about what God might possibly do, but by looking back at God's previous faithfulness and saying, God, just keep doing what you've always done for me. I know you've got me. If you're a Christian, let me ask you this. Do you struggle to trust God's faithfulness? Do you struggle in tough moments to trust that God is gonna get you through them? Do you, do you find yourself prone to anxiety and worry? in moments of stress and pressure. And let me ask you this, how often do you recount God's faithfulness, God's deeds in your life out loud to other people? How often do you pray actual prayers out loud of thanksgiving to God for what he's done for you? How do you write things down? Testimony is incredibly powerful. Paul, the apostle Paul in the New Testament says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Make your request known to God, and the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That phrase, with thanksgiving, is so key there, and it's exactly what I'm talking about here. Testimony is powerful because it, is it, it forces you to stop and recount how faithful God has been and to remember with thanksgiving how trustworthy he is because you may or may not be able to deliver yourself from a, from a stressful situation, but God is able. And testimony if, you, you know, if this is a regular part of your life, then when someone looks at you and says, hey, be encouraged, God is with you and God is for you. And you're like, yeah, I know that. David's done this his whole life. He's written a whole songbook of it. When Jonathan comes to reassure him, I can just picture David saying, yep, you're right. There wasn't like a, oh, maybe not, David said. Yeah, his hand was strengthened in God because he's, he knows it. God has been faithful to him time and time again. So Jonathan comes and encourages him strengthens his hand. Moving on to chapter 24 to kind of round out this picture that this passage gives us to David, uh, of David. We get to really the meaty story for the morning. And, and, and this, yeah, this gives us the, the rest of the picture of David. Verses one through three of chapter 24, uh, we're, we're prepared in a few quick verses for what is to come. Saul, you know, so Saul has left. He's been diverted from having David surrounded. Um, and Saul leaves to go fight the Philistines. And then he comes right back to pursuing David. He receives word from his scouts where David is. While Saul is in pursuit, though, he turns into a cave to relieve himself, and he just so happens to choose the exact cave that David and his men are hiding out in. Um, and if you think about it, you know, how, how providential is this? Right? Your enemy, who's been hunting, down, you know, hunting you down to try to kill you, to seek your life, 
just who he just so happens to be the most powerful man in the country. He's hunting you, and, and here he is defenseless right in front of you. The, the Hebrew says literally that Saul came into the cave to cover his feet, which is an idiom uh, referring to the, the sanitary kind of covering of excrement when you go number two. So Saul is in this cave popping a squat, right, in an, in an, incredible, an incredibly vulnerable uh, uh, moment in his life. And the men who are with David can't believe their fortune. This, this must be right from God. Verse four, uh, the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, I can almost hear them cackling because, and here's Saul. Anyway, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. So they they say, this is the day that the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And this is, I mean, this is incredible. Think about it, right? Are they really that wrong to notice? Say, David, you've been chased. You've been chased and chased and chased. And here you have an opportunity to, to really seize control. But what does David do? Does David say, you're right to his friends? and then reach out and kill Saul. Nope, he doesn't. What he does is he goes up and he slices off a piece of Saul's robe. Verse four, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse five, and afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. But David doesn't kill Saul. All signs, everyone in his life is pointing at him, saying, hey, this is it, you should do this. David says no. Why? (laughs) Why didn't he do this? He had the opportunity to seize the throne. And it sure looked like God was handing this to him on a silver platter, because God had said to him before, you're gonna be the king. This wasn't David as some like renegade, you know, revolt trying to overthrow the king. This is the future king of Israel who had been told by God. And this sure looked like this was being offered up on a silver platter. His friends sure thought so. But look at, look at how it happened. David, it says David was cut to the heart. His heart struck him. And why? David said, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against my Lord, the king. That the command to not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed was a big deal in the Old Testament. David refers to it here and he refers to it elsewhere. You're not allowed to lay your hand, right or wrong, on the king, on the one that the Lord has anointed to take the throne of Israel. And David knew, uh, therefore, that this is a big deal. To lay a hand on Saul was wrong. And even when he did something apparently minor, even when David cut off a piece of Saul's robe, he knew that he had gone too far. He was struck to the heart. You know, you would think that if anyone had been given a carte blanche to bend the rules just a little bit um, on this this particular rule, don't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. If anyone would have been given a, a carte blanche to bend this rule, it would have been David, the other anointed one who was trying, who was being you know, his, the other anointed was trying to kill him. So this other anointed one says, okay, in self-defense, I'm gonna, I'm gonna seize the opportunity to, to defend myself. You would think that if anyone had a carte blanche, it would have been David, but no. A commentator says this, the end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. David's men don't see this. They claim to have God in their pocket to know how he relates to the specific situation. It's so obvious, it's so clear, but... David knew this was against the command of God. This is deeper too. This is deeper than thou shalt not kill. This isn't David just saying, okay, this is one of the 10 commandments, easy, done. It, was, it had to do with anointing and it was kind of mixed up in the fact that, like I just said, you know, David was the anointed one being, you know, and the other anointed one was trying to kill him. So it was, it was deeper than this. This is, this is David saying, not my will, 
but God's will. And further, David goes on. He says, to his, he says this to his men, and, and it persuaded them. Literally in the Hebrew, it says it tore his men apart. Right? So David, David's men are telling him to do this. He goes up and strikes, he goes up and slices off a piece of the robe. Uh, and then he's like, I can't do this. And presumably his men were chomping at the bit, saying, you know what, if you won't do it, we'll do it for you. And David says, no, this is, this is not acceptable for me to do, and it's not acceptable for you to do. Even though it might have benefited, it would have certainly benefited David greatly for them to make the mistake on his behalf. He said, no. How often, you know, how often are we like those men? <laughs> we see it, David. The Lord has given him into your hand. Go get him, get your kingdom. How often do we confuse providence with temptation? Right? Think about your own life. When, when have you received a so-called opportunity saying, man, this must be straight from the Lord. This would be absolutely what I do. So what if I have to kind of step over a couple of, of people to, to seize this opportunity? So what if I have to break that rule a little bit? This is just such a great opportunity. Man, David's patience is, is astounding. This, and this actually sets the tone for the, the next few chapters. There's a common theme that starts to unfold here and in 25 and 26, uh, the, the patient self-control of David who waits for God's timing to bring about his promises. This is all about God's patience or David's patience. And where does it come from? It comes from his trust in the Lord. Now think about all the times, all the opportunities that David had to be tempted away uh, from his pursuit of God, his trust in God. Like God was delivering him time and time again. He could have gotten a big head and said, you know what, I can do, I can do no wrong, Right? I go out and just seize the day, do my thing, and God's gonna be with me. David could have done that, but he didn't. He trusted God and said, not my will, but yours. Not my timing, but your timing. At the moment when David could have had it all, he turned back. The moment he could have taken vengeance on his enemy, he left vengeance in God's hands. Later on, he says to Saul's face, the Lord judge between me and you. I'm not the judge. He cedes authority over the situation completely to God. So what do we make of these two pictures? It's really an incredible story, right? We see Saul's kingship imploding. The ship is going down. Right? And we see David rising. And what do we see in the characterization underlying this? We see, for, on one hand, self-centeredness, envy, pride, sin. On the other hand, we see humility, self-denial, ceding authority to God. Saul says, I must deal with my enemies, therefore I must kill David. David says, God will deal with my enemies, therefore I must trust and wait for God. It's just about as blatant of a contrast as you can find in the Bible. So it's easy then, right? Saul's the bad example. Right? David is the good example. How about we just choose to be like David? Right? That's what this story is telling us. Well, it's not that simple, uh, of course. For starters, typically when we think about being like someone, we think about acting the way that they act. Uh, we could look at the virtues that David exhibited in this story, right? He was patient. Even when he had a chance, he didn't take revenge on his enemy. He was faithful to the Lord's command to not touch the, the Lord's anointed or to not murder, right? When he knew it was right, he convinced his friends to do the right thing, even when their misstep would have benefited him greatly. There's all kinds of things that were, that were good that David did that it would be great to seek to emulate. Um, and, and that would be good. Doing those things is good, but but to look at this story as a story simply giving us values to emulate would be to miss the point of this story, I think, really, altogether. What we're seeing here with David um, is the outworking of something that we were told about him before. And I've used the phrase a couple times already. Back in 1 Samuel 13, we're told that David is a man after God's own heart. Right? 1 Samuel 13, what's happening there is Saul is getting ready to fight a battle 
uh, against the Philistines. And so he offers this rash sacrifice improperly. Um, And when he makes this mistake, Samuel rebukes Saul and says, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He's speaking of David there. He's anointed him so that he might be king. That's back in 1 Samuel 13. And, And what this story today shows us is that the virtues that David exhibits are symptoms of that underlying cause. David was a man after God's own heart. It wasn't that he was just a good man and that's what, that's what made him favorite. He was the, the, the underlying cause for all of these symptoms that are virtues is the fact that he was after God's own heart. And that, that is the kicker. Let me tell you what I mean. David's focus here was not on his own kingdom. It was on God's kingdom. David trusted that God's plan for him was better than any plan that he could make for himself. And that doing things God way, God's way was best. David did this because he was a man after God's heart and he was pursuing God's kingdom. And the problem with that is that this is actually, um, as you and I both know, this is antithetical to human nature. Choosing to live for the sake of another king and kingdom, uh, God himself in particular, goes against every fiber of our being. But the Bible speaks um, uh, of what this involves in no ambiguous terms, right? Choosing to live for God's kingdom, like I said at the beginning, is choosing to die, to die to ourselves. And that's not something that we as human beings are wired to do ourselves. And let me say this, it's not hard for me to convince you that self-sacrifice is a good thing. Right? That, that, that true satisfaction comes from laying down your life for other people. You don't need to be a Christian to know that. All you need to do is experience doing that and see that laying down your life for, for other people is, is satisfying. But the problem is that while we know that's right, in an ultimate sense, we don't do it. We constantly find ourselves knowing what's right and choosing to do something that's not what we know to be right. And it's usually seemingly small things. Uh, for Saul, his, his fall, it's, it's important to note that his fall was not an immediate thing. He didn't just wake up one morning obsessed with killing David. Right, it was gradual. It started with an innocent enough sounding attempt at something that, that Saul really thought was good. I'll tell you a little bit more about that story from 1 Samuel 13. Saul's the new king of Israel. He's getting ready to fight a battle against the Philistines. And, he, and, in, and in, before he fights the battle, he's like, I, I want to perform a sacrifice so that I can seek the Lord's favor before we go into this battle. And as he was waiting for Samuel, the prophet, to come and perform the sacrificial ceremony in keeping with God's law, Saul got impatient. He said, I want to do this now. And so he went ahead and said, I can just do this my way and it'll be fine because I'm doing it for God. It was a seemingly small oversight that God probably should have overlooked, right? I mean, Saul's heart was in the right place. He was performing a sacrifice. He was doing it for God. Uh, you know, in his mind, he was, he was in the right. But no, he wasn't. As it becomes increasingly clear, his heart was not in the right place because he was all about his own understanding, his own kingdom, his own plans for that kingdom. It took a while for Saul's loss of the kingdom to unfold, but from that very first moment, the end was inevitable. It's kind of like a satellite uh, falling from orbit. I don't know how much you know about satellites. It takes a huge amount of energy to launch a satellite into outer space, but once it's in orbit, going at just the right speed, at just the right altitude, the engines turn off and it just sits there rotating around the earth. That's why you have these satellites that have been put up there since the 50s that haven't been refueled because they're just in the right orbit. All it takes to knock a satellite out of orbit is less than a second of, of fuel. This goes, psh, and it just knocks it slightly off balance. And then eventually the fall becomes faster and faster and faster until it burns up and lands on the ground. 
But this moment in, in, in Saul's life was critical and was very similar to that. While it was a seemingly small issue, it was less than a second of, of fuel, right? It was that little push that knocked the satellite that is Saul towards earth. Uh, and in the 10 chapters following this, we see the, the, the acceleration of this fall. Uh, and that's often how sin works, right? It, initially, it, it, it might seem innocuous, right? It might seem safe, uh, inoffensive, maybe even right. Like Taylor said last week, uh, with the exception of envy, just about every other sin offers some sweetness, and it's real sweetness, right? It's good. It feels good. It feels right. But in the end, there is one direction that sin leads, and it's not to prosperity, right? It will always drain. It will always leave empty. It will always leave, it will always uh, fail to meet the glorious promises that it makes and leave us in defeat, despair, and ultimately death. You see, when Saul made this mistake, Samuel rebuked him saying, because of this, your kingdom shall not continue. Saul probably heard that and thought, well, that's a bit of an overreaction. Right? This is one mistake. It's going to be fine. Um, but the thing is, you know, we're not talking here about immediate effects. If we think back to the story of Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said, on the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And they ate of the fruit, and they didn't die. They lived for a long time after that. And eventually, they died. Right? Think about cigarettes. I mean, I'm pretty correct in saying that they'll kill you, but sometimes they don't kill you, you might tell me. <laughs> you know, you can have someone who dies of cancer at age 40, lung cancer, or you can have someone who smokes a pack a day until they die at 90, right? Um, but, you know, sin is similar to that. Sometimes it has immediate effects and sometimes it doesn't. But we're not talking here about the difference between a 40-year life and a 90-year life. We're talking about eternity, eternal life with God or eternal death without God. So when someone says, hey, your sin will kill you, that might sound strong, but in the end, we're talking about the latter, not, you know, it's going to take, a, you're going to die right now. Um, with Saul, the battle that the, against the Philistines that he sacrificed for, they won that battle. And so after Saul sacrificed him properly and then won, he was like, oh, see, it wasn't that big of a deal. Anyway, that's often how it happens, but eventually we see things start picking up speed. Saul didn't just wake up one morning, like I said, obsessed with killing David. It started with this one story, choosing to do things his own way just once. And then it got worse and worse in the story right before our passage for today. Saul had had a whole family, a whole tribe of priests slaughtered because they housed David. This wasn't a small thing. And ultimately, you know, we, we all do this. We repeatedly choose our own way. It's often when things that we think should be right but if they're not right in God's eyes, they will spiral out of control. And 100% of the time, they end in death. The thing is, we need more than just an example to follow. If anything, when we read through the Bible, we see here that even the best of people fall in line with the rest of humanity in sin. Later on, the most colorful example with David is the fact that he sees a woman who's not his wife. He goes, he beckons her to him. Her name's Bathsheba. Uh, and commits an act that today would be probably easily considered rape, and then he has her husband killed so that he could have her as his own. Right? David, this is the David who we're talking about. He does this later on in his life. So even David, even a man after God's own heart was not immune to sin, to choosing his own way. Because the truth is, we need someone greater than David. The Bible, including this story, is not a book that tells us live this way, don't live that way. This story, along with the rest of the Bible, points to the fact that you need to be rewired. You need to be men, women, and children who have hearts after God's own heart. And in order to do that, we need to be given new hearts. 
the underlying purpose of this story is that it points us to the greater David who is yet to come. There is one who came who would eventually come and experience something very similar to David. You might be familiar with the story. Jesus Christ, right after his baptism, at the very beginning of his ministry, he's baptized and then he's sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan tempts him with three things. And the third temptation, Satan says this. Satan says, Satan takes him to a very high mountain. Jesus takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Sounds very similar to that moment for David. You can have, this is the moment. God's given this into your hand. You can take it right now. Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So David had the opportunity to seize the throne of Israel, but he waited because God was gonna do it his way. Jesus had the opportunity to seize the throne of the whole earth, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All he had to do was bow down to worship Satan, but he didn't. He waited and walked in accordance with God's plan and thank God that he did. You see, as similar as that story sounds, the marked, there is, a, of course, a marked contrast between the story of David and the story of Jesus. Because David knew that in his patience, he was not forsaking his safety. He was actually choosing safety, right? He knew that God was going to preserve him, make him a king, and make him a great king. And so David's patience was, okay, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take this gratification and delay it a little bit, right? Jesus was very different. He knew that when he faced the temptation in the, in the desert, this was Satan looking at Jesus and saying, hey, I know your plan is to die, to suffer for these people. You don't have to do that. You can have it right now. All you need to do is worship me. And Jesus said, no. He knew that his decision to wait was, was the decision not to become safe, but the decision to suffer. Jesus received no such relief. When David, you know, David was, was on the mountain, Saul was closing in, and, and darkness was, was, was overwhelming him. Saul had the chance to come in and kill David, right? God sent the Philistines to deliver David. There's all kinds of movie scenes that I could probably, yeah, I'll, I'll spare you. But this moment, the darkness was closing in and God delivered David. There was a moment in Jesus' life when darkness was closing in. It looked like evil would overcome Jesus and there was no deliverer. Jesus exclaimed on the cross as he's hanging there. The darkness is around. No one is there to take him down to rescue him. He says even to his father in heaven, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, as baffling as it might be to look at David and wonder, man, why did, why did, when he had the chance, did he not do that? Why did he not just seize the throne when he could have? It's even more baffling to look at Jesus' decision to, to, to hold back from taking control of the earth without suffering. Because, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. Some people look at the God of the Bible and say, man, he just sounds like a self, you know, self-absorbed, selfish God who wants power and worship from everyone. But it's stories like this that show that the, the characterization of God like that doesn't work. Right? If God was all about himself and his own pleasure, then why wouldn't, Jesus have, why wouldn't Jesus have just come ridden in on a white horse, declared victory over all of his enemies, pierced their hearts, thrown them away, and declared his kingdom to be instated on earth? That was why he came. Right? Jesus came to earth to instate his kingdom on earth. Why didn't he just ride in in power? Why, why you know, he, he could have done this, but why didn't he do that? Because that wasn't God's plan. God's plan wasn't to come and slay us all to establish a new kingdom. It was to come for broken people and to redeem us, not some future project of God. His, his heart was of, of love for the world. God 
created us not to have creatures to rule over, but to have little image bearers of himself with whom he could enjoy loving fellowship and a relationship. This is the personal God that the Bible describes. That was God's hope from the beginning. And when sin enters the world and destroys this blissful relationship between God and humanity, God doesn't give up. He had plans to restore that relationship. And in order to do that, he needed to pay the penalty for sin. The only way to do that would be to give himself for us. And so, yeah, when Jesus had the opportunity to seize the kingdom, that could have been, you know, that was, it sounded like it was in line with his purpose for coming, right? It's like, oh, this is just an easy way out. But that wouldn't have done the most important reason that Jesus came. It was to die for you and for me, to restore us, to cleanse our hearts, to perform the heart transplant that is described in Ezekiel so that we could actually be made right before God and live lives in pursuit of God, truly pursuing God, laying down our lives for his kingdom And so what's the point? What's the point of all this? I think the point that this, what this passage is driving at with us and what the Lord would have for us today is he would look at us and say, some of you are clinging to your own lives. So think about it. What are you holding on to? Jesus died so that we could be free so that we could have freedom. It says the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Jesus died to set us free, to, to, to enable us to live the way that we were created. And, and the New Testament, the way that the Bible describes the kind of life in Christ is a life of power. It's a life of joy. It's a life of, of pushing back the forces of darkness, living lives, pleasing to God, building up the world, building the kingdom of God in the world. It's a powerful life that is described. Uh, Andrew Murray, one pastor back in the 1800s said this, He said, what are are you holding on to? God calls us to lay down our life. And he says, is this not the reason of your feeble life? The reason that the Holy Spirit does not fill your being, that you have never forsaken all to follow Christ. The question that this passage asks me is what what is it that I'm holding on to, um, that that, that I'm not dying to? What is it that I am pursuing? My, My way, my way of understanding that I'm clinging to, um, that is preventing the freedom that God describes? Where, have I, where am I still grabbing for authority in my life? And what that does, when I ask myself that question, when we ask ourselves that question, what that does is it brings us, Lord willing, to the end of ourselves and the reality that truly there is no way that I can see the authority over my life myself. There's no way for me to do it. If there was a way for me to, to do it and just be, be a humble self-sacrificial person, then Jesus would not have had to die. But Jesus' plan was to come and die, to set us free. And all that the Bible says that we must do is look and behold the Lord. God's plan for all time, right, was to have a people for himself who he could enjoy relationship with and through whom he could cover the, the earth with glory. Right? And when that, when that plan, when sin threw a wrench in that plan, God's plan was to come back and say, I don't care. Sin, not even sin is powerful enough to keep my people from me. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The death that is the penalty for sin is not coming for those who would fix their eyes on Christ and believe him. And, and this is, you know, as, as a, let me close this way. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells a story um, about building a house on a rock versus building a house on sand. Jesus says this. He 
says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus tells this story of two houses, one built on the sand, one built on rock. And the clear point of, of Jesus telling that story is this. He said, you who would build your lives on your own understanding, you who would build your own kingdom on your own strength, on your own understanding, on your own power, the moment, uh, the moment a challenge comes your way and the moment you stand before my face and I look to you and say, what, 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 what has come of your life? That house will immediately fall down. But you who look on Christ and believe on Christ and build your house on that rock, who die to yourself, that is the house that will stand. Uh, Taylor preached a sermon a couple weeks ago on Psalm chapter one that talks about the blessed man. Blessed is the man who you know, walks not in the counts of the wicked, um, but, 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 but meditates on God's law day and night. And then it says this, the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of living water. That stream of living water is God himself. And, and the call in this passage, the call throughout the Bible is to look at Jesus, the one who says to you, look at me, and all will be well. Look at me, and I will plant you by these streams. I will sustain you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each other. Thank you for your word. Thank you um, for this passage. Thank you for... Uh, this morning and the time that you've given us together to, to celebrate you, to come around uh, you, you, your word through song, through prayer, um, through, through sharing the peace with each other that you've given us. Um, I pray that you would use this story, these pictures, the picture of Saul and just the, the explosion of his kingship and the picture of David, this picture of humility, his steadfastness and really trust in you, ceding authority of his life over to you. And I pray that you would use these two pictures just to point us to what's truly important. Not mustering up our own strength to lay down our lives and to live for others and to, you know, to live self-sacrificially, but that you would use those pictures to point us to the greater David, the one who came and truly laid down his life for the sake of his friends, and he finished it to the end. He laid down his life for me. He laid down his life my brothers and sisters, and I pray that you would captivate us with that truth. You would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to trust in him with every fiber of our being, to believe the gospel, not a set of facts that we can grasp by our own understanding, but just to look at you and fall in love with you and, and experience your love for us. Help us grip, grip our hearts, Lord, through your word, through the songs that we sing, through the, the sacrament that we are about to enjoy together grip our hearts and help us, Lord, to lay down our lives today by your power, your empowering spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.